Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and we pray that you would open it to us this morning. Help us to see exactly what you want us to see and learn exactly what you want us to learn. Let us be attentive to uh, the reading of the word and for what you want us to, to learn. But Lord, allow nothing that I say that may lead people in a wrong direction to be remembered. I pray, Lord, that only those things that correspond with what you want people to understand would be, would be heard and would be remembered as we go through this this morning. Be at work by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 25 of Acts chapter 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to use uh, one of the ones that are in the chair racks, those blue Bibles there, then uh, Acts chapter 8 verse 9 I think is on page 1166. Now over the last two weeks we've we've set the context for this passage that we're about to look at uh, when we looked at the first eight verses of chapter 8. And the book of Acts, remember, is the account of the growth of the early church. And this summer, we're specifically looking at chapters 8 through 12. And up through Acts chapter 8 in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus had mainly been in the city of Jerusalem. But in verse 1, of Acts chapter 8, we read that a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And as a result, the church was scattered through the immediate region of Judea and even into Samaria. And in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8, it tells us that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And specifically, we learn about a, a man named Philip who was teaching people in Samaria about Jesus. Well, now, beginning in verse 9, we begin to get some of the particulars, some of the details about what happened as a result of Philip's evangelism. So let me invite you to stand if you're able as I read this. And when I finish, I'm going to make the declaration that this is God's word and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed." Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "'Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit.'" But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray to me, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come Upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
there's a, um, there's, a, there's a park near where we used to live in Wilmington, the Alapocos Run State Park. And a couple of years ago, about this time of year, they posted a, uh, a notice on their Facebook page uh, reminding people that with the arrival of hot and humid weather, copperhead snakes were being spotted in the park, particularly among the stones and the outcroppings uh, along the paths. Now, from what I've read, the venom of the copperhead snake is relatively mild, whatever that means, but it's still a venomous snake, and the only venomous snake found in Delaware, as a matter of fact. And so I want you to do a little mental test with me, right? Imagine you were to receive a warning like that, that a venomous snake had been sighted regularly at a park where you visit. How do you react to that? What's your initial reaction to that? Now, some of you uh, who enjoy the park might prefer simply to not know it, not know the information, just prefer not to know so that you can go on enjoying, enjoying the park in ignorance. Others may be glad that you now know, but have just resolved to never visit that park ever again. Now, what I would propose is that neither reaction, ignorance or fear, is the right reaction when it comes to the kind of snakes that we sometimes encounter in the, in the Word of God. Now, I once heard a pastor describe preaching like this. This is why I say it. He said the role of the pastor, the role of the preacher on a Sunday morning is to essentially, along the path of the Bible, throw the rocks into the bushes along the path and make sure that you scare out all the snakes. That is, identify the areas that potentially seem dangerous. You, you, you need to do this, he says, because you can't address a particular text in ignorance. The preacher is like the, like the park ranger leading his group through the bushes, that is, through the, through the text. And if you just pretend that the snakes aren't there, you run the risk of them eventually biting someone in the party that you're leading because you haven't told them that they're there. Now, neither can you address the text in in fear. In fact, the challenge for the preacher is, once all the snakes are scared out of the bushes, it's his job to make sure that all of the snakes either are killed or at least captured by the end of the sermon. Now, that's a pretty tall task, right? But if that isn't done, he's probably only made the text seem more dangerous than it originally was when you were in ignorance because now the snakes are out in the open and we haven't dealt with them. Well, there's probably two Two main snakes in what we just read, or at least two traditional challenges in interpreting this text. The first is how to understand the relationship between someone who believes the gospel and someone who receives the Holy Spirit. In other words, is there a difference? And why does it seem as if there is a difference here in this, in this text here? That's the first snake, and it's a very important theological discussion for us to have. The second one, though, the, the second one is intensely... He was even baptized, and yet his faith is called into question by none other, none other than the Apostle Peter himself. Why is that? And personally, if that's true for, for Simon, how can we have assurance of our salvation as well? All right, those are the snakes. And just so you know, I see them. Now let's walk through the text together and see if by the end we can either kill or at least capture them, or at least deal with them in a way that allows us to neither fear, fear them nor ignore them. Now let's divide the text into four sections to to do that. If you have a Bible, you can even maybe take a pencil and mark it off 
of the different sections. Verses 9 to 13, you have a surprising confession. That's the confession of Simon. Verses 14 to 17, you have an apostolic blessing of what was happening there in Samaria. Verses 18 and 19, you have a revealing request that comes by the, this guy named Simon. And in verses 20 to 25, you have a sharp rebuke, the Apostle Peter speaking to that same Simon. Now, I'm sorry, surprising confession, apostolic blessing, revealing request, sharp rebuke, there's no alliteration. They don't rhyme at all. It's the best I could do. Now, let's start with surprising confession. Philip is telling people about Jesus in Samaria. That's where he is. Which, remember, was filled with people, Samaria was, that were not particularly fond of or liked by the Jews. That's an understatement. And surprisingly, at least to some, these outcasts from traditional Jewish society were now confessing faith in Jesus and they were being accepted into the community of the church. That's what it says in verse 12. It says, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. But the real surprising confession comes from the primary subject of the passage, and that's this guy named Simon. It's surprising enough that the Samaritans in Mass are coming to know Jesus and believe in him and be baptized, but this guy Simon, this is especially surprising. Now, who's Simon? Well, it says he practiced magic or sorcery. Right? Actions that, that manipulated his audience either by trickery or with the assistance of some demonic power or maybe both. It also seems that he had quite a high opinion of himself, saying he was someone great, verse 9 tells us. And the people of this Samaritan city, they seem to agree that he was, uh, he was all that. If he had been on Twitter, they would have all been followers of Simon. In fact, the people seem to ascribe to him almost godlike kind of status. This man is the power of God that is called great. That's what they say. So how surprising is it then that not only some of the people believe the teaching about Jesus, the teaching that is being given by Philip, and they're publicly added to the church, but so seemingly does Simon. In verse 13, it says, even Simon himself, himself, you can almost hear the astonishment, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, that's the first section, verses 9 to 13, surprising confession. Now, the second section, apostolic blessing, verses 14 to 17. So, when the apostles in Jerusalem, it tells us, heard about all these Samaritans believing the gospel, they decided that they should send, right, in a way all the Presbyterians here could appreciate, they decided to send a committee, we need a committee to go investigate what's happening here, and, they, and it's a pretty high-profile delegation, right? Not just any apostles. They send Peter and John, right? Two from Jesus' inner circle. They send them to Samaria to check it out, and that's exactly what they do. They arrive, and they check it out, and when they arrived, it says in verse 15, Peter and John prayed for these new Samaritan believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit for, because, verse 16, he, that is the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, now here's where we see snake number one. Is this saying that it is possible to become a believer in Jesus and to be baptized without the Holy Spirit? Well, we know from the Bible's teaching elsewhere that, that to believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit needs to be, in at least some sense, active in someone's life, or, or someone would never come to understand their need for Jesus in the first place. The Apostle John, part of the committee, by the way, would have understood it that way. John's teaching about the Holy Spirit and his account of Jesus' life is probably the most detailed 
in any of the four accounts of Jesus' life. In John 16, verses 8 and 9, John writes that one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to convict people of their sin, he says, so that people can believe in Him. In other words, you can't believe without the Holy Spirit, in some sense. Paul says the same thing in very clear terms in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and I like the way the New International Version puts it. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In other words, baptism is the sign applied to believers that mark them as belongers to the church, but you don't belong to Christ without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had to be operating, at least in some sense, in the hearts of the Samaritans, even before Peter and John uh, arrived, because otherwise they would not have understood their sin, they would not have put their faith in Jesus. But there's a second step, another step of receiving the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, one that follows the initial work of the Spirit. Is there? Is that what happens? Is that what we're saying? At least in Samaria, clearly it seems that's what happened. But the real question is, is that, is that normative, or is there something happening in Samaria that helps us understand what was, what was occurring at that time in a very unique way? Right? Is this something that we're to understand is normative about how salvation works in every instance, even in every age? Or is there something unique about what's happening here in Acts chapter 8? That's the question. And I think there's every reason to think that this is a unique event. Now, that's not to diminish the importance of what's happening here. In fact, just the opposite. It's to magnify the importance of what's happening here. What's happening here in Samaria with the Holy Spirit is amazing, and it fits right in with what Jesus said would happen. And it helps us see how everything fits together with the larger storyline of the early church. In Acts chapter 1, Luke records some of the very last words that Jesus ever said before he ascended back into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Three basic categories, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the gospel message is going to be preached to the Jews, it's going to be preached to the, to the half-Jews, Samaria, and it's going to be preached to the Gentiles. And then what we see in Acts is that each time that gospel message advances to the next stage, the power of the Holy Spirit is put on display in an outwardly visible way to mark what is happening and to give assurance and to give credence to what Jesus said, that this is what was going to happen. And the Holy Spirit comes in a powerful way that accentuates it and says, this is what we said was going to occur. Now, that's what happened in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down in a special and a dramatic way. That's where it starts, just where Jesus said it would start, as a witness to that in Jerusalem. That's the first stage. Now, go to the third stage, right, to all the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 19, when the apostle Paul brings the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles there. You see it, Gentiles, the end of the earth. That's the third stage. But here in Acts chapter 8, Samaria represents the second stage. And like with the arrival or the powerful display of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, stage number 1, or in Acts chapter 19, stage number 3, the Holy Spirit comes here in stage number 2 in a very dramatic way as well. And the reason why God uses Peter and John specifically to be the the messengers or the ones who bring the the Holy Spirit is so that everyone will see the connection and the continuity between the church that was in Jerusalem and the church that is now being established here in Samaria. There is no 
Jewish church and there is no Samaritan church. There is one church and it is occurring exactly as Jesus said it would occur. Peter and John are bestowing apostolic blessing and authority. It's one church, one Holy Spirit, all part of one plan initiated by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. So this is a special, unique occurrence that's meant to highlight the unity of the church and the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus. So let's, let's review. Section number one of the text we look at, a surprising confession from the Samaritans in general and Simon in particular. And then, and then now that's section two, an apostolic blessing that comes with a display of power by the Holy Spirit. Now, section three, no real snakes here, but we do see the attention move back to this guy Simon because in verses 18 and 19, he makes a revealing request. Read it again quickly, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, whatever happened with the Holy Spirit certainly got the attention of Simon. He watches Peter and he watches John put their hands on people, and the Holy Spirit of God comes down in a dramatic way on them, in power. And so he goes to Peter and he goes to John and he says to them, Guys, that was awesome. You have no idea how this would work in my act. Right? You've got to teach me how to do this. Right? Look, I, and, and I want to be fair about this. I'm willing to pay. That's basically what he says. So he offers them money, and he makes a revealing request. And actually, it's more of a demand than a request. He says, give me the ability to put my hands on people so that this same thing will happen to them because that would be really cool. And it's revealing because it starts to tell us something about Simon here. Right? This is exactly how magicians and sorcerers behaved. They often exchanged secrets for money. Hey, you give me your trick, I'll pay you for that. That was really cool what you did. Here, let me give you a little something. Teach me how to do that. This is how it worked. Right? And either Simon is acting in line with his true character, he's just simply falling back into his old ways. We'll talk about that in a minute. But either way, it's not a good sign, the way he's approaching the apostles here. That's section three, a revealing request, which brings us in response to a sharp rebuke from Peter in the last section. All right, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's finish our walk through the text by looking a little bit more closely at that. The fourth section, a sharp rebuke. Let me just read it again. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, there's really two ways to interpret what's happening here, two options on how you can take this. Now, perhaps, perhaps Simon is truly a Christian, and Peter's referring to just a, a flaw in his sanctification, Right, in other words, Peter's just pointing out an area where, where Simon needs to see some growth, where we need, to, we, need to, we need to change, we need to repent, bring this before the Lord. But he's not, in this first view, he's not challenging Simon's salvation. That's one option, that's one possible interpretation. The second possible interpretation is that Peter is indeed suggesting that Simon's original profession of faith is just a sham. In other words, his belief from back in verse 13 was not genuine. He didn't really believe. Those are the two options. And I think that there's a number of good reasons to choose the second. 
Not because we would want it to be so. We would have hoped that Simon would have truly repented and believed. But, but I think there's a number of good reasons to actually think that it is the second. Now, the first reason is if you go back and you look at what happened to Simon in, in section 1, his surprising confession, you see that there's absolutely no evidence of repentance coming from Simon. Now, I might not have, it just might not have mentioned it, but repentance is absolutely essential. And it doesn't seem that he has any recognition that he sinned against a holy God or that there is a holy God to whom he would be accountable. But belief and repentance always go together. That's the summary of what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. They can't be separated. Yeah, but he was baptized, someone might say. Object and say, yeah, well, he, he was baptized. Yeah, he was. And maybe it calls into question the wisdom of of Philip in, in, in baptizing him. But baptism, one way or the other, even if someone is baptized, baptism doesn't save us. Baptism points us to the Savior. It points us to, to Jesus, but it's no proof, no absolute proof of being joined to Jesus when baptism is not accompanied by faith and repentance. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching at Pentecost and the people are confronted with their rebellion against God, they ask the question, what shall we do? what do we do? They understand their sin. And Peter replies, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. True belief in baptism that has been made effective are always accompanied by real repentance. Now, in addition to that, remember Simon's request. He basically wants to purchase a um, a franchise distributorship in this Holy Spirit thing. He wants to open his own Holy Spirit dealership. Let me do that too. But that request, just that request, shows us that he completely misunderstands what the gospel offers. The gospel is an offer of a new life, not an offer of an enhanced or turbocharged old one, right? But the request that Simon makes here reveals that he doesn't really want a new life. He wants his sorcerer career to to, to go on turbocharge. He wants to make a capital investment in the Holy Spirit so that he can upgrade his show. Now, we have to, we have to be careful here, right? It's easy to make fun of Simon, to laugh at how silly it seems to, to buy the power of God. But, but we try to do that too sometimes, don't we? You've all had those bargaining conversations with God at different points, haven't you? Where we offer to do something, act somehow, behave in some kind of way, and in return we expect God to, to what? put on a show for us, right? Do what we want. Do it when we want it. But that's not what God's offering because that means he wouldn't be God. And Simon doesn't seem to get that. Now, the final reason to believe that Simon isn't converted at this point, I think, is the sharpness of the rebuke by by Peter. Peter seems to be drawing a pretty sharp line here. May your silver perish with you, he says. Now, several of the commentators translate the sense of that phrase, and I think actually the Phillips paraphrase translation actually says, to hell with you and your money. Now, maybe some of the modern translators kind of shirk back from that because it's like, wow, that's a little harsh. Not sure how that would go across in some you know, of the proper kind of churches or whatever. But that's exactly what literally it seems as if Peter is saying. You can take your money and go to hell. That's what Peter says. And it's true. Because that's exactly where the money is taking Simon. And when in verse 21, Peter says that he has, that Simon has neither part nor lot in this matter. It's a little bit strange, awkward kind of language. But he's using Old Testament language of cursing here. 
which means Simon has no rightful inheritance in the kingdom of God. You have neither part nor lot. You have no rightful inheritance. Now, that's not true for the believer. The true believer, no matter how confused or how mistaken in his theology, is a full heir to the promises of God. The Apostle Paul would later write to the Ephesians that when someone truly believes, the Holy Spirit is deposit, is a guarantee of our glorious inheritance, the guarantee that we have part and lot. But Simon uh, is being told here by Peter that he has no inheritance. Therefore, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he does not truly believe. And I think we have reason to understand this as, as more than just a pastoral opinion. Right? These are the apostles who are speaking here. These aren't just some, you know, kind of random guys on the street. The Peter and, and John, this was the committee. They were in Jerusalem on a sanctioned apostolic mission to validate the work of God. And so what Peter is pronouncing here, I think we can see as an apostolic curse. Now, that's not that's not completely airtight, that argument, but I think it's, I, I think it's the best way to view the, the text. And if that's true, it ought to be somewhat scary for us. A profession of faith, an outward expression of belief, is not the same thing as true faith. All true faith is professed, but not all professed faith is true. I know this personally. When I was a, um, a, a freshman at the University of Delaware, an upperclassman uh, was going around visiting people in their, in their dorms. He was a, a Christian who was working with Campus Crusade for Christ. I think they call it crew now, student ministry. And, uh, and I wasn't home in my dorm room when he came by, and so he left a little note on my door. It's back in the days. I don't know if they do this in college dorms now. We had little whiteboards. Everyone would have like a little whiteboard on their dorm because you didn't have a cell phone to leave a text message. So if you stopped by, you would write, you know, hey, stop by, you know, give me a call or whatever, and, and that's what people would do. Well, he left a little note on my little whiteboard, hey, stop by, and he left his left his number, asked for you know, me to give him a call so we could get together sometime. Now me, simultaneously stupid and arrogant, I called him back. Now I can't imagine this happened often to him, so I, I, I think he probably thought he had hooked a live one. And so he came. We got together in my, in my dorm room and we talked and he launches into his presentation of the gospel. He used the, the four spiritual laws. That was what the Campus Crusade folks always used, a little booklet on the four spiritual laws. And, 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 he's, and he starts talking. And, 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 and see, I had, heard the, I had heard the gospel when I was in, in high school a few years earlier. I had actually made an outward profession of of faith. And I was a pretty good student. I was pretty good at this kind of a, kind of a thing. I had a good family life. I wasn't in a particularly a, a partying crowd. I was one of the good kids. I understood the argument. I knew what he was kind of saying. and I, I could say these words and I can say them right back to him. And that's exactly what I did. And at the end of the conversation, that campus worker for Campus Crusade for Christ left that dorm room absolutely assured that I was a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. When in reality, there could not have been anything farther from the truth at that moment. In fact, I was probably at that moment, even with all of my head knowledge, because of the way that I was approaching the gospel and the glibness with which I was shooting it back at him, I was probably farther away from that point, from, from, from God at that point, than, than when I had never understood any of it at all. Now, that raises a very uncomfortable and personal question. How can any of us ever have any assurance of our salvation then? That's the second snake that's in the bushes here that we need to capture before we finish. There are different ways to answer this, and there isn't time to address every question that might still arise, but let me highlight three things 
that I think can help us, instruct us, so that we can have assurance of our standing with God. Right? Where do we look? We look at our lives, we look at our loves, and we look at our Lord. There's the alliteration that we were waiting for. There it is, finally. Look at our lives, look at our loves, and look at our Lord. Now, Jesus himself said, look at our lives. Jesus himself said in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, important clarification, right? The things that we do, our behavior as Christians, our our growth in righteousness, our steadily increasing desire and ability to live in line with what God has commanded, all of those things are in no way the ground or the cause of our salvation. They are not what merits our standing with God. However, what Jesus means and what the rest of the Bible supports is that those who willfully and without remorse practice evil, who habitually walk in wickedness, have no good reason for assurance of their salvation. That's because true repentance and and, and true belief become visible over time. And claims of repentance and claims of belief without corresponding evidence should be doubted. That's what James says in his, in his letter in chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the answer to James's rhetorical question is, of course, no. Faith, he says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, that faith is not real faith. That faith is, is dead. Now, if that's true, then the reverse is also true. Faith, if accompanied by action, should be understood as real faith can be. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't fail. But when your hatred of behavior that the Bible calls sin is increasing, and when there is a corresponding desire to grow in obedience to the commands of God, even as you see and as you see in front of you daily your inability to do it perfectly, but if that desire is there and it's growing, then you have every reason to be assured that your faith is genuine. Look at your lives. Second, look at your loves. Assurance comes from the love we have from others, especially for other Christians. That's what John says in 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. How do you know that you've passed from death to life? That's what John's saying. What assurance can you have? John says, well, you can know by how you love your brothers. John records, that Je- records Jesus saying pretty much the same thing, though he says it slightly differently. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 13, right before he's arrested and killed, he tells his disciples to love one another. And then he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How can people know that we're true followers of Jesus? What assurance can they have that we're followers of Jesus? Jesus says, well, you can know, you can have an assurance by the way they love each other. Now, those are good things. Those are good signs of true belief. And the Bible tells us that we need to to look at them. But we know that those things, how we live and how we love, those things can come and they can go with intensity in our lives. We know that even a real, truly believing Christian can struggle mightily with a particular sin pattern in his life or her life. And we all know that there are times when we fail to love others as we're supposed to love them. 
That's why it's absolutely critical that while, number one, we look at our lives, and number two, we look at our loves, why it's absolutely critical to number three, make sure that we look at our Lord. Peter wants Simon to look at Jesus. Do you see that? The sharp rebuke that Peter gives here, right? If, if Simon would receive it, that sharp rebuke is grace. I certainly recognize it. Right? When, I, when I look at the account of Simon and I think of my conversation in my dorm room, I shudder to think about how blind I was. To think that my right words and my outward morality, my ability to articulate the gospel was the same as me actually believing it. I shudder to think that I was in that sense with my own morality and my own articulateness trying to buy the Holy Spirit. That campus crusade worker knew the canned presentation of the gospel cold. And I can't knock him too much because honestly he was acting as a witness to the gospel in a much better way with a lot more boldness in sharing his faith than, than, than I have on most days. But what I needed at that moment was not, from him, not for him to pat me on the back and say, well, it looks like everything's good here, which is essentially what he told me. What I needed from him at that moment was the gracious rebuke of Peter that says, Tom, to hell with your morality. To hell with your grades. To hell with your politics. Now, he didn't have to be obnoxious about it. He could have said that to me more graciously. He could have said it more lovingly. But I needed that said. And by God's grace, other Christians came into my life over the next few years who did. Here's the point. Peter's rebuke is an offer of grace. And, and, and do you stop, can you stop and think for a second about how personal this must have been for Peter himself? He's somewhat of an ironic messenger. None of the other apostles who could have come to Samaria would have understood to the degree that Peter would have understood what it would feel like to hear the sharp rebuke of Jesus and to view it as grace. It happened to Peter on a number of occasions, right? One time, Matthew 16, when Peter was trying to talk Jesus out of the whole cross thing, you don't really need to do that, Jesus, and Jesus calls him Satan. But the most humbling moment for, for Peter is when Peter stands in the courtyard of the high priest during Jesus' trial, and Peter denies knowing Jesus, denies even knowing him three times, refusing to even acknowledge his existence at the moment of, of Jesus' greatest pain. And at that moment, Luke records that the rooster crows for the third time. Jesus turns and looks at Peter across the courtyard. And Peter remembers what Jesus had said. Can you imagine the rebuke of that look? And the Bible accounts all record that Jesus immediately goes outside and weeps. Or Peter goes outside and weeps bitterly. Now, if there would have, been, if there would have ever been a moment for Peter to question his relationship to Jesus with Jesus, to struggle with assurance. It would have been then, it would have been at that moment. But in the despair that followed over the next couple of days, where does Peter look? Where does he go? He still looks to Jesus. In fact, he runs to Jesus. On the Sunday after Jesus' death, when the report comes back to the apostles from the women that Jesus had been seen alive, who are the two disciples who run first to the tomb? John and Peter. Peter had with Jesus was in the courtyard of the high priest, and that did not go well. 
And Peter must have been drowning in his sorrow and drowning in his regret, and yet he had no other place to go with it than to his Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is restored. I don't have time to look at it, but John, John actually records later the conversation that Peter had with Jesus, where Peter is welcomed back into the heart of the Lord that he had betrayed. Now here in Acts chapter 8, here's Peter talking to a guy named Simon. What was Peter's name before he met Jesus? Simon. You think that escaped Peter? I doubt it. And he's pleading with Simon, repent and pray to the Lord. Run to Jesus. Now sadly, like we talked about, I'm not sure Simon does. You see his response in verse 24. You can make your own judgment. To me, he seems more worried about what he's he seems worried about what he's done, but he, he runs to Peter, not to Jesus. He says to Peter, you, you pray for me, that nothing of what you said will come upon me. But he, he misses the point. Remember Judas? Judas, when, when, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he felt sorry for what he had done too. He shed tears over it too. He went to a religious leader and he said, you do something. He said to the religious leaders, you do something about it. Peter ran to Jesus. Judas did not. He ran to the religious leaders, and they couldn't offer him anything. So in despair, Judas killed himself. I'm not sure what happens to Simon. Many of the early church leaders believe that he became the the leader of a heretical sect that uh, he became the theological nemesis of the apostle Peter. But but as we end, don't, don't worry too much about the academic speculation of Simon until you answer the question about you. What about you? Are you looking to Jesus? In your quest for assurance, in your quest for assurance that you have a part and a lot of the inheritance, Jesus is the only one to whom you can look. Only Jesus. In the letter to the Hebrews in the Bible, that's what it says, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Do you hear that? What's the basis of our ability to draw near to God with a, with a sincere heart of full assurance? Since what? Since we have a great high priest. Jesus is the one worth looking to because Jesus is the one who is the great high priest. He's the one who makes the sacrifice for us. Don't you see? Right? The only way we get a part and a lot, the only way we become an heir of an inheritance of blessing is because Jesus has traded places with us. He gave up his part and lot, took what, uh, gave up what was rightfully his. And he took what was rightfully ours, our perishing, so that we might live and we might become heirs. That's the good news of the kingdom of God that was flooding through Samaria. And when that becomes your hope, even though you still struggle greatly with sin, even though you don't always love others like you should, when that becomes your hope, then you can have full assurance that you are his. You're going to struggle with sin. Your love will frequently fail, but Jesus never will. Look to Jesus, run to Jesus, and don't be afraid of the snakes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the assurance and the confidence that those who look to you in true faith, who see their need for you, can be confident they belong to you, and that you will hold on to them to the very end. 
God, we pray that we would go from this place with that assurance. Or if we do not have it, Lord, that we would seek it. That we would not allow the, the struggle that may result from that question to go unanswered. That we wouldn't just put it aside. And Lord, I pray that if any are struggling with that, that it could be a struggle that is answered and that they too might have the assurance of eternal life through Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.